All right. Good morning, everybody. So as Keith said, uh, last week we started a new series called The Sounding Joy, where we're looking more closely at the lyrics to Christmas carols and the scripture passages that inspire them. And uh, just in case anyone wasn't here last week and you missed it, uh, we are going to come back to the series in Revelation in 2020. Um, I'm not chickening out. We're going to come back to it, uh, but we're taking a break so we can be a bit more in the spirit of the season during Advent. Last Sunday, we took a closer look at Hark the Herald Angels Sing, one of my personal favorite Christmas carols. And uh, this week, as was already said, we're looking at what child is this? So the words to this carol, it's kind of a neat story uh, behind it. The words were written by a man named William Chatterton Dix. Uh, He was uh, born in England in 1837. There's a picture of him. Uh, He was not a minister or anything like that. He actually worked in insurance, so he was like a lot of people from Connecticut. And um, when he was 25 years old, some sources say 29 years old, he came down with a really nasty illness, uh, something that kept him bedridden for months or maybe even years. And he became very depressed. Uh, He wasn't sure if he was going to live or die. And during that time, he had a spiritual awakening. He started to uh, read the Bible extensively. And as he had this spiritual awakening, his heart was kind of overflowing. And so he wrote poems and hymns. And one of the poems that he wrote was called The Manger Throne. And three stanzas from that poem eventually became what we now call What Child Is This? Um, So he wrote it probably around 1865, and within 10 years, uh, someone took those three stanzas from the manger throne, and they set them to the the music of a very old folk melody called Green Sleeves. And uh, we don't know exactly how old Green Sleeves is, but we have proof that people knew this melody and knew it by name in the late 1500s. So I don't know about you, but for me, that just makes it a little more haunting. It's like, oh man, this this melody has been around for forever. So the music was first united with the manger throne in 1871, so that means if you do the math, people have been singing this for 148 years. So not quite as long as Hark the Herald Angels Sing, but pretty close. So I know we just sang the lyrics to this song, but sometimes reading them has a different effect than singing them. So I'm going to read through them. And you may notice we sang it the way that it's often sung, uh, which is to repeat the chorus, this, this is Christ the King, every time. But actually, in uh, William Chatterton Dix's original lyrics, uh, there's a different chorus each time. And so you'll see some words up here that we didn't just sing but um, they're important. So, what child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthem sweet while shepherds watch are keeping? This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him laud, the babe, the son of Mary. 
Why lies he in such mean estate where ox and ass are feeding? Good Christian fear, for sinners here the silent word is pleading. Nails, spear shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. So bring him incense, gold, and myrrh. Come peasant, king, to own him. The king of kings salvation brings. Let loving hearts enthrone him. Raise, raise a song on high. The virgin sings her lullaby. Joy, joy, for Christ is born, the babe, the son of Mary. Now, if I were to pick one word to sum up this carol, it would be one that takes you back to high school English class. It would be irony. Uh, I've noticed that when you go online, a lot of people argue over what the proper use of that word is. And uh, people will say, oh, that was ironic. And people will say, no, it wasn't ironic. If you look at the actual definition of irony, it wasn't ironic at all. There's a lot of uh, controversy over irony these days. Um, But I'm confident, and I'll argue with you if you disagree, um, that something is ironic if it is a reversal of expectations. Okay. Um, And what this carol is calling our attention to is the fact that when the Messiah arrived, most of the circumstances surrounding his birth were a reversal of expectations. Now, they were not a reversal of prophetic expectations. There were prophecies in the Old Testament about what would happen when the Messiah would come, and Jesus fulfilled those. But there was a reversal of cultural expectations. And that irony is captured by the original title of William Chatterton Dix's Uh, poem, right? The manger throne. The what? The manger throne? That's deliberately ironic. A manger is a feeding trough for animals. It's not a throne. And yet when the king of kings is born, he is laid in a feeding trough for animals. The current title of the carol, What Child Is This?, is also deliberately calling our attention to this irony, this reversal of expectations. What child is this? Well, you know, if you're looking at a child born to poor parents, born out of wedlock, lying in a manger, surrounded by animals because there was no room in the inn, and you ask, what child is this? The expected answer is not this. This is Christ the King. This is the King of Kings. But of course, that's the answer that the carol gives. So this carol is trying to get us to see this irony, to appreciate this irony, and then to respond with worship, to realize that this ironic reversal of expectations is cause for praise. So how does it bring out this irony? Well, one way that it's emphasized is by the way the first stanza emphasizes the shepherds. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Now, that that juxtaposition of angels and shepherds is very intentional. You know, this king arrives, and his arrival is heralded by angel armies. If you ever hear the phrase, the angelic host, what that actually means is an army of angels. We just think of a bunch of, like, angels in robes singing, right? But the host actually means the army of angels. So he arrives, and his arrival is heralded by these angel armies, But then, who's actually guarding him? Well, it's not uh, some sort of servant or military guards, but shepherds. 
And what we can miss is that shepherds are just blue-collar working-class folks. Shepherds, they weren't, they weren't social outcasts or anything like that, but they weren't seen as people of high status at all. They were, you know, kind of dirty, out working out in the fields, and nobody, no, no Jewish parent had a kid and thought, well, I really hope he grows up to be a shepherd. Shepherding wasn't that kind of profession. And yet God chose to have shepherds welcome his son the night that he was born. He chose to have shepherds be the ones that hear from the herald angels. He chose shepherds to be the welcoming committee for the king of kings. That's ironic. I don't know if you've ever wondered, okay, why did God choose to send the angels to the shepherds? Was there a reason for that? You know, the question becomes relevant when you realize, you know, God could have sent herald angels to anyone, right? He could have sent angels to everyone. And we know he didn't do that, though, because after the shepherds went and visited Jesus, it says that they went out and they shared the news with everybody. And it says that people didn't say, oh, we already knew that because God sent us an angel too. What everyone said was, wow, that's amazing. So God specifically chose these shepherds for this special privilege of being the first witnesses to the arrival of the incarnate deity. He chose shepherds to be the ones that would forever be in our nativity scenes. And why did he do that? What's the reason for that? Well, part of the reason is the irony itself. Because the irony shows us that God doesn't care about social status. Right? It shows us that God values the poor and the working class just as much as the wealthy and the highly educated, and he actually chooses to identify with the poor and the working class. But I suspect that God picked shepherds for this role for another reason besides just the irony, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but hopefully you'll find this interesting. God knew that one day Jesus would come to be known as two things, the Lamb of God and the Good Shepherd. And so having shepherds be the first ones to welcome Jesus foreshadows that future. It hints at what's to come. It shows that God is the author of this story and he knows what's going on. Uh, First, Lamb of God. Jesus came to be known as the Lamb of God because lambs were offered as a sacrifice to atone for sin. And Jesus, like a sacrificial lamb, offered his own life on the cross to rescue us from our sins, right? Jesus is the Lamb of God because he is the final and perfect sacrifice for us. You might remember that the last time we were in a sermon on the book of Revelation, we were in chapter 5, and in John's vision, he saw Jesus. And what did Jesus look like? Jesus looked like a lamb who had been slain, standing on the throne of God. And John saw Jesus represented by that symbol because Jesus is the final and perfect sacrifice for our sins. He is the one who willingly offers himself for our salvation. So when you're, when you're thinking of that, you can see how beautifully poetic it is that the first people to welcome Jesus are shepherds, people who keep sheep. The first ones to pay homage to the King of Kings, to the Lamb of God, are people who look after lambs. 
And I think it's, it's also beautifully uh, poetic that these shepherds who look after sheep, they get the news about Jesus, and then they leave all their sheep at night, right, to go and see the Lamb of God. See, that's a hint to us that this Lamb of God that's been born is far superior to any other sacrifice. See that? And then there's the idea that Jesus is the good shepherd. This was actually a title that Jesus gave to himself. In John uh, 10, 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus wants us to see him as a loving caretaker who looks after us and protects us. And if we wander and go astray, he guides us back towards where we're supposed to be. He wants, he wants us to see him as an ultimate shepherd who is actually willing to give everything to protect us. And so again, with that in mind, isn't it beautifully poetic that the first people to recognize Jesus and, and to come and pay their respects to him are shepherds, right? These are shepherds paying respect to the ultimate shepherd. So anyway, I think that's pretty cool. But let's get back to the lyrics of What Child Is This? Uh, looking at the second verse, it asks, Why lies he in such mean estate where ox and ass are feeding? In other words, this question is, why this irony? Mean estate is actually a, a 19th century way of saying low class or vulgar. It's like, why is the king of kings in such low-class, vulgar circumstances? Why is that? And I love the answer. The answer is my favorite line in the whole song. It's good Christian fear. For sinners here, the silent word is pleading. This is my favorite line, but it's also the hardest one to understand. And it's a reminder that punctuation is important. Um, so first, good Christian fear. And then just imagine there's a colon right after that. Okay. Good Christian, comma, fear. In other words, Christians, respect what you're seeing here. Feel awe and reverence at this. We hear the word fear and we automatically think of, you know, terror and, and, and run away, beware. But what this is really saying is feel awe, feel amazed. Do you realize how incredible it is that the king of kings is in such mean estate, in such low-class circumstances? Feel awe at this. Why should you feel awe at this? Because the silent word is pleading for sinners. The silent word is pleading. Now, what does that mean? Well, remember last week we talked a little about the word word, right? Uh, the first chapter of John's Gospel says that the Word has always existed. The Word has always been with God, and the Word has always been God. And that is very hard to wrap our mind around, but that's what the Bible says. The Word was always with God, and the Word was God. And John writes that through the Word, everything was made that has been made, and the Word is the source of all light and life in the world. In the world. <clears throat> and then he says, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So the Word is Jesus. 
The word is God incarnate, God born as a human being. And in what, what child is this? It says that the word is both silent and pleading. That's a paradox, right? That's interesting. It's a paradox. The word is both silent and pleading. How is it both silent and pleading? Well, first, the word is silent because in this moment, the word is an infant, right? The word cannot speak a word or a sentence, right? Infants don't talk. They do cry, as we established last week, okay? Uh, but they don't speak, not with words anyway. So the word that made the world is silent. But it's also pleading. How is it pleading? It's pleading for sinners. How can that be? Because the silent word shows us how far God is willing to go to save us. He is willing to take on flesh. He is willing to be born as a baby. The one who spoke the world into existence is willing to humble himself so much to become a baby who can't speak a single word. And not only that, he's willing to be born to poor parents in poor circumstances on a night when there's no room in the inn. He's pleading, pleading for us. The Apostle Paul talks about this in his letter to the Philippians. He writes, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. So Jesus, despite being in very nature God, despite being God, he did not grasp at his rights and his privileges, right? But he willingly gave them up in an act of radical humility so that we might be saved. He willingly gave them up so that he could reveal himself to us in a way that we could understand and show us his love and his care for us and rescue us from sin and death and the devil. So, when we look at the infant Jesus in the manger, we should hear God pleading for us. We should hear him saying, look at how far I am willing to go to bridge the gap that's between us. Look at how much comfort I'm willing to forsake in order to be with you. Look at what I'm willing to suffer so that you might be saved. And then the song goes even further to remind us of the extent to which the word pleads for us, right? Because it goes from the manger to the cross. And it says, nails, spear shall pierce him through, the cross be born for me, for you. And actually, that's the same thing that the Apostle Paul says in Philippians, right after where we left off. He says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. At the center of our faith is this idea that we have a God who pleads for us. A God who does not abandon us in our sinful mess, or, you know, just give up and hit the reset button on all of creation. You know, this is a, this is a disaster. I'm just going to redo the whole thing. He doesn't do that. 
We have a God who continually reaches out to us, a God who continually stoops down to us and humbles himself and even suffers for our sake. You know, I think sometimes we have a tendency to think of God like a king who sits comfortably on a throne, distant and remote from us, right? Uh, The kind of king who sends his people out to war, to suffer and do battle completely on their own, watching from a distance. But Christmas should remind us our God doesn't send us out to battle on our own against the forces of evil. In fact, our God leads the battle, right? Our, Our God goes into the midst of the conflict. He enters in and he overcomes. That's a God who pleads for us. Or here's another analogy. I think sometimes we think of God kind of like the owner of a sports team, and humanity is the sports team. We've got a bad record, you know? We're like 0 and 12, and the rest of the season's not looking well. And we imagine that God is observing us from his expensive box seat, watching, and he's shaking his head, and he's grumpy. But Christmas should remind us that our God isn't like that, right? Our God comes down out of the box seat, and he joins the team of humanity, and he shows us how the game is played, and he plays hard, and he leads us to the championship, and he wins. That's our God, right? (laughs) He's not passive. He's not idle. He's not distant. He pleads for us. God is not like a, uh, a lackluster friend or family member who never shows up when you need them. You know, the kind of friend who just says over and over again, I can't be there, but I'm with you in spirit. It's like, well, that's a nice sentiment, but it's not really what we want, right? He's more like the friend who pays you a visit when you need it, and he puts his arm around you, and he says, I'm with you. That's what Christmas should remind us of. And that's what we should think when we see the baby in the manger, that is God saying, I'm with you, Emmanuel. I'm pleading for you. Let's look at the last verse. So bring him incense, gold, and myrrh. Come peasant king to own him. The king of kings salvation brings. Let loving hearts enthrone him. So here we're told how we should be responding to this irony and this pleading of God. We should be responding with worship. We should be responding by giving our, our resources, our gifts, our talents, and, and, and offering him, them up to him for his purposes. The line, come peasant king to own him, this is another one where punctuation is important. I, when I hear this, I still think, come peasant king, like, the peasant king is coming. I don't know who the peasant king is, but, you know, he's coming to pay homage. Um, but, of course, when we pay attention to the commas, we see that he's saying, come peasant and come king to own him. The point is, from the lowest of the low to the highest of the high, everybody should be coming to worship Jesus. Jesus is for the poor and the rich alike, the low class, the high class. He is the true king of everyone, and everyone should be coming and acknowledging him as the king of kings. And the way that we acknowledge him 
as the king of kings is in the next line. We enthrone him in our hearts. Let loving hearts enthrone him. And this is significant, okay, because the Jews were expecting the Messiah to be someone who who would be enthroned on earth in a very obvious way. They were expecting him to reign from a seat of political power. And they were expecting him to come and take charge through military conquest. And Jesus upset all those expectations. You know, he upset expectations not just with his ironic arrival, but throughout his entire ministry. He just, his ministry was a continual act of subverting expectations. And he continues to upset expectations today. Instead of establishing an earthly political reign, Jesus established a reign in the hearts of his people, right? a reign in the hearts of men and women. Uh, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. We've heard that, right? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And often when we hear that, we think that means, oh, Jesus' kingdom is off up in the air somewhere. But if you look at the context when he says that, what it really means is my kingdom is not the way this world ordinarily operates. The way my kingdom works is different. Most earthly kingdoms are built and maintained on what? Well, on strategic self-interest, on violence, on pride, on attacking enemies. That's how earthly kingdoms typically work. But Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. It works differently. Jesus' kingdom is built and maintained through love, humility, generosity, and concern for enemies. It's a a kingdom that spreads as we allow Jesus to reign in our hearts. And, And as he does, he transforms our hearts. And through transforming our hearts, he transforms the world. So this carol encourages us to ask, have I enthroned Jesus in my own life? In other words, have I allowed Jesus to have the highest place of authority in my life? Have I given him my worship, my adoration? Now your answer this morning might be no. Your answer might be, I'm not sure. Your answer might be, I'm kind of uncomfortable doing that. And if it's any of those things, this carol says to you, look at the silent word pleading for you. Look at how much God will give up to be your redeemer, right? From becoming a baby, lying in a manger, to being crucified as a man. Hear him pleading for your heart. Recognize this is the Lamb of God. This is the Good Shepherd. Someone or something is always going to have the throne in your life. Something is going to have that seat of ultimate authority. Something is going to be the thing or, or, or person that you worship. It's just inevitable. So let it be the God who is willing to lie in mean estate. you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a God who 
subverts our expectations in such wonderful ways. God, we thank you that you are a God who identifies with the, quote, lowly. We thank you that you are a God who affirms the dignity and worth of all people. Lord, I pray that this Christmas we would be reminded of the irony of the manger. And Lord, I pray that we would look at the manger and we would see you pleading for us, pleading for sinners. We thank you, uh, Lord, for this glorious gift. In Jesus' name, amen.